A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 1 Cairo and the Great Pyramid, Part 3. Thus it came to pass that, for the first ten days or so, some three or four hours had to be devoted every morning to the business of the boats, at the end of which time we were no nearer a conclusion than at first. The small boats were too small for either comfort or safety, especially in what Nile travellers call a big wind. The medium-sized boats, which lie under the suspicion of being used in the summer for the transport of cargo, were for the most part of doubtful cleanliness. The largest boats, which alone seemed unexceptionable, contained from eight to ten cabins, besides two saloons, and were obviously too large for a party consisting of only L, the writer, and a maid. And all were exorbitantly dear. Encompassed by these manifold difficulties, listening now to this and that person's opinion, deliberating, haggling, comparing, hesitating, we vibrated daily between Bulak and Cairo, and led a miserable life. Meanwhile, however, we met some former acquaintances, made some new ones, and when not too tired or downhearted, saw what we could of the sights of Cairo, which helped a little to soften the asperities of our lot. One of our first excursions was, of course, to the pyramids, which lie within an hour and a half's easy drive from the hotel door. We started immediately after an early luncheon, followed an excellent road all the way, and were back in time for dinner at half-past six but it must be understood that we did not go to see the pyramids, we went only to look at them. Later on, having meanwhile been up the Nile and back, and gone through months of training, we came again not only with due leisure, but also with some practical understanding of the manifold phases through which the arts and architecture of Egypt had passed, since those far-off days of Cheops and Kephren. Then, only, we can be said to have seen the pyramids, until we arrived at that stage of our pilgrimage, it will be well to defer everything like a detailed account of them or their surroundings. Of this first brief visit, enough, therefore, a brief record. The first glimpse that most travellers now get of the pyramids is from the window of the railway carriage as they come from Alexandria, and it is not impressive. It does not take one's breath away, for instance, like a first sight of the Alps from the high level of the Neufchatel line, or the outline of the Acropolis at Athens, as one first recognizes it from the sea. The well-known triangular forms look small and shadowy, and are too familiar to be in any way startling. And the same, I think, is true of every distant view of them, that is, of every view which is too distant to afford the means of scaling them against other objects. It is only in approaching them, and observing how they grow with every foot of the road, that one begins to feel they are not so familiar after all. But when at last the edge of the desert is reached, and the long sand slope climbed, and the rocky platform gained, and the great pyramid in all its unexpected bulk and majesty towers close above one's head, the effect is as sudden as it is overwhelming. It shuts out the sky and the horizon it shuts out all the other pyramids. It shuts out everything but the sense of awe and wonder. Now, too, one discovers that it was with the forms of the pyramids, and only their forms, that one had been acquainted all those years past. 
of their surface, their color, their relative position, their number, to say nothing of their size, one had hitherto entertained no kind of definite plan. The most careful study of plans and measurements, the clearest photographs, the most elaborate descriptions, had done little or nothing, after all, to make one know the place beforehand. This undulating tableland of sand and rock, pitted with open graves and cumbered with mounds of shapeless masonry, is wholly unlike the desert of our dreams. The pyramids of Cheops and Kephren are bigger than we had expected. The pyramid of Mycerinus is smaller. Here, too, are nine pyramids, instead of three. They are all entered in the plans and mentioned in the guide-books, but somehow one is unprepared to find them there, and cannot help looking upon them as intruders. These six extra pyramids are small and greatly dilapidated. One, indeed, is little more than a big carn. Even the great pyramid puzzles us with an unexpected sense of unlikeness. We know, and have known from childhood, that it was stripped of its outer block some five hundred years ago to build Arab mosques and palaces. But the rugged, rock-like aspect of that giant staircase takes us by surprise, nevertheless. Nor does it look like a partial ruin, either. It looks as if it had been left unfinished, and as if the workmen might be coming back to-morrow morning. The color, again, is a surprise. Few persons can be aware beforehand of the rich, tawny hue that Egyptian limestone assumes after ages exposed to the blaze of an Egyptian sky. Seen in certain lights, the pyramids look like piles of massy gold. Having but one hour and forty minutes to spend on the spot, we resolutely refused on this first occasion to be shown anything, or told anything, or to be taken anywhere, except, indeed, for a few minutes to the brink of the sand-hollow in which the Sphinx lies couchant. We wish to give our whole attention, and all the short time at our disposal, to the Great Pyramid only, to gain some impression of the outer aspect and size of this enormous structure, to steady our minds to something like an understanding of its age, was enough, and more than enough, for so brief a visit. For it is no easy task to realize, however imperfectly, the duration of six or seven thousand years, and the pyramid, which is supposed to have been some four thousand two hundred and odd years old at the time of the birth of Christ, is now in its seventh millenniary. Standing there close against the base of it, touching it, measuring her own height against one of its lowest blocks, looking up all the stages of that vast, receding, rugged wall which leads upward like an alpine buttress and seems almost to touch the sky, the writer suddenly became aware that these remote dates had never presented themselves to her mind until this moment as anything but abstract numerals. Now, for the first time, they resolved themselves into something concrete, definite, real. They were no longer figures, but years with their changes of season, their high and low niles, their seed-times and harvests. The consciousness of that moment will never, perhaps, quite wear away. It was as if one had been snatched up for an instant to some vast height overlooking the plains of time, and had seen the centuries mapped out beneath one's feet. To appreciate the size of the Great Pyramid is less difficult than to apprehend its age. No one who has walked the length of one side, climbed to the top, and learned the dimensions from Murray can fail to form a tolerably clear idea of its mere bulk. The measurements given by Sir Gardner Wilkinson are as follows. The length of each side, 732 feet. 
perpendicular height, 480 feet 9 inches, area, 535,824 square feet. That is to say, it stands 115 feet 9 inches higher than the cross on the top of St. Paul's, and about 20 feet lower than Box Hill in Surrey, and if transported bodily to London, it would a little more than cover the whole area of Lincoln's Inn Fields. These are sufficiently matter-of-fact statements, and sufficiently intelligible, but like most calculations of the kind, they diminish rather than do justice to the dignity of the subject. More impressive by far than the weightiest array of figures of the most striking comparisons was the shadow cast by the great pyramid as the sun went down. That mighty shadow, sharp and distinct, stretched across the stony platform of the desert and over full three-quarters of a mile to the green plain below. It divided the sunlight where it fell, just as its great original divided the sunlight in the upper air, and it darkened the space it covered like an eclipse. It was not without a thrill of something approaching to awe that one remembered how the self-same shadow had gone on registering, not only the height of the most stupendous gnomon ever set up by human hands, but the slow passage, day by day, of more than sixty centuries of the world's history. It was still lengthening over the landscape as we went down the long sand slope and regained the carriage. Some six or eight Arabs in fluttering white garments ran on ahead to bid us a last good-bye. That we should have driven over from Cairo only to sit quietly down and look at the Great Pyramid had filled them with unfeigned astonishment. With such energy and dispatch as the modern traveller uses, we might have been to the top, and seen the Temple of the Sphinx, and done two or three of the principal tombs in the time. "'You come again,' said they. "'Good Arabs show you everything. You see nothing this time.' So, promising to return ere long, we drove away, well content, nevertheless, with the way in which our time had been spent. The pyramid Bedouins had been plentifully abused by travellers and guide-books, but we found no reason to complain of them now or afterwards. They neither crowded round us, nor followed us, nor importuned us in any way. They are naturally vivacious and very talkative, yet the gentle fellows were dumb as mutes when they found we wished for silence." and they were satisfied with a very moderate bakshish at parting. As a fitting sequel to this excursion, we went, I think next day, to see the mosque of Sultan Hassan, which is one of those medieval structures said to have been built with the casing-stones of the Great Pyramid. End of Section 3